Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Diana Garvin, assistant professor of Mediterranean studies in the Department of Romance Languages at the University of Oregon. Prior to joining the UO faculty in fall 2018, Garvin was a fellow at the American Academy of Rome as a recipient of the Rome Prize in Modern Italian Studies. Garvin's research interests include the modern history of Southern Europe and East Africa, fascism and neo-fascism, feminist and post-colonial theory, food studies, and film studies. Her current book project is Feeding Fascism, Tabletop Politics in Italy and Italian East Africa, 1922 to 1945. Thanks, Diana, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So what attracted you to the University of Oregon? From the very start, I absolutely loved the people. Even in the very first conversations I had uh, over Skype, um, and then when I first came to campus, uh, to campus, everyone was interested in some of the same big philosophical and ethical questions. So everything from how deeply do politics penetrate the everyday, to why study a political period that's so contentious. Um, people were interested in the same big concepts, uh, but, in, but were coming at it from slightly different perspectives. And I had never had that before. What led to your interest in the Mediterranean region during the fascist regime in Italy? Well, it began with the Italian language. I absolutely adored speaking it. Uh, with all those open vowels, I mean, there's a reason why it's the language of opera. It's this bouncing, spiraling language. And it was so much fun to speak and to hear that I continue to research in that area. Um, and then the history of the area called me to the greater Mediterranean. It's impossible to study 20th and 21st century Italy without also considering East Africa and to a lesser extent North Africa. So Tell us a little bit about the goals that Italy hoped to achieve with its colonial project in, in Africa. So the primary goal would have been to support Italy by finding alternate places to provide food. Um, Italy was still a very poor country in the early 20th century, um, and they were not even producing enough wheat to make, uh, to make sufficient spaghetti available. In fact, Miss Mussolini actually attempted to ban pasta during his tenureship. So invading East Africa served the purpose of shoring up um, a brief decline in popularity of the fascist party by keeping people's bellies full. And tell me the name of the, um, the, the, the uh, goal of the fascist, which was self-sufficiency. What's that word? Ah, yes. So this word is autarky, and this is a key word for the research. Um, autarky means economic self-sufficiency. Now, a lot of scholars have looked at autarky in terms of, let's say, linguistic autarky, where you only use Italian terms. So that means getting rid of American and French import words. You can't say cocktail anymore. You have to say um, a prolibita, so something that is you know, delicious to drink. Um, you can't say a... Um, you can't say bar, you have to say acquisi beve, which means here one drinks. Um, but people have not really looked at what autarky meant in terms of food. Uh, in today's terms, it would be privileging locally grown foods, but obviously in the fascist period, this had much more sinister connotations. So tell us why you employ food and women's work as the sort of two principal lenses with which you approach your research. So there are many different schools of historical theory, and I ally broadly with what's known as history from below. 
Um, so it's history of um, the average person. I'm interested in who was making the minestrone rather than who was eating it. Um, so this is a great way of getting, looking at who is cooking is a great history, uh, is a great way of getting at the history of people who didn't write it. So this is generally women, racial and ethnic minorities, um, in some cases even forgotten regions of the country. Um, <clears throat> so tell us a little bit about the kinds of materials and resources that you use in your research. So this is uh, one of my very favorite parts of the work, which is I use everything from old cookbooks to watercolor menus um, to objects. So if I might show you an example, I do not always carry a poster in my briefcase, but occasionally it does happen. Um, so you might be wondering how can a toaster um, serve the same purpose as a 1930s uh, you know, tract from a dictator, so some sort of a public speech. Um, so you can do a few things with an object like this. Um, I like to look first at its material properties. The first thing I notice about this toaster is uh, it's very beautiful. Um, so this toaster, while it's American, is very similar to some of the Italian models that I work with. It has the gleam, it has the shine. Um, so what does metal mean during the 1930s? It would have been associated with futurism, with modernity, with speeding things up. And in fact, that's what happens in the cooking process. This is the first time that people could have cooked with electricity. Um, so instead of making a fire, taking out a pan, um, starting the butter, cutting the bread, now you're cooking not with your whole body, but with the push of a button. Most people didn't experience the acceleration and crowds of modernity um, with highways, byways, and jumping on a jet plane. Um, the average country woman would not have gotten on a plane, but she might have gotten a toaster. Hmm. Fascinating. And where do you do this research that you do? I mean, if you're working with material culture, where do you go? Of course. Um, so I have gone to archives uh, all over Europe at this point. Um, some of my favorites um, are part of what's known as, uh, they are the industrial archives. Um, many people don't know this, but a lot of the major Italian food brands Barilla Pasta is a good example, Peroni Beer, um, Perugina Chocolates, all of them keep in-house archives and museums. And if you give them a call and ask nicely, they will let you go in and play with the 100-year-old uh, bars of chocolate. <laughs> so the, that is one of my favorite parts of the research. Um, I'm particularly partial to working with um, the beautiful machines. Uh, my favorite archive that I visited last year was the Museo Cagliari on the outskirts of Modena. And they had the most shining collection of uh, vintage espresso machines that I had ever seen. <laughs> so I, another aspect uh, of your work that I'm aware of is this focus on the fascist regime's obsession with developing modes of industrialized motherhood. So mm -hmm. first of all, what is industrialized motherhood and why did they want to do that? Yes. So the idea behind industrialized motherhood is that every part of human life belonged to the state. This is very characteristic of fascist and more generally dictatorial societies. Anything that you produce, um, not just work in a factory, but also what you're producing in the private home, um, 
And in this, uh, in this article uh, where I discuss the idea of industrial mother motherhood, this includes breast milk, belongs to the state. So the dictatorial regime intervened um, so deeply into everyday life as to try and dictate when, where, and how mothers would breastfeed. To me, that's an example of industrial motherhood. They, with, this is the period when um, maternal health care is becoming an industrial complex in Italy. Mothers were encouraged to visit public clinics to breastfeed at timed intervals, and the state controlled their diet. So this was a eugenic move to try and turn motherhood into a form of factory work. And I've read this article that you referred to, and you, one of the things that's interesting is you found these contradictions in this project. You want to say a little bit about that? Yes. Um, one of the most characteristic elements of um, fascism and also Nazism is the internal contradictions. Uh, the state will have a goal, for example, of um, getting as much agricultural labor out of a um, working female farmer as humanly possible. But that goal of agricultural productivity is directly contradicted by another goal, which is biological productivity. At the same time that the fascist regime wants more wheat, they also want more infants. And with the degree of physical labor that both of those activities entail, it's physically impossible to do both. And that's where I pick up my pen. Um, that is where things become very interesting because women need to resolve those internal contradictions and they often do so in ways that privilege resistance. You wanna say a little bit more about that part yes. of the story? Um, so one of my very favorite um, groups to study is the Mondine. These are um, uh, migrant agricultural workers, uh, all women, um, who weeded the rice fields under fascism. And they were heralded by the regime as um, these florid, beautiful, productive figures of, fa of fascist, ideal fascist motherhood. Wonderful for the regime, um, except for the fact that Almost all of these women identified as anarchist, socialist, communist, um, in an era of local elections where people were marked by the black cards of fascism, they carried red. And they actually practiced rebellion in the fields uh, with a variety of call and response work songs. Um, they developed a fluid system of turn taking that they later used in wildcat strikes. Uh, they were instrumental in introducing the eight-hour workday in Italy, and this during the years of the heart of fascism. Fascinating. Um, one of the things you say in your research statements is that you try to engage the five senses in your work. Uh, why is that important, and how do you do that? Mm -hmm. The materials that I work with are still very alive. Um, in terms of the Mondini I was just speaking of, you can still hear those work songs. Um, they've been, uh, they've been codified as part of, uh, the folk music culture in Italy today. So those voices still resound. Um, in terms of, let's go with the sense of hearing for the moment, um, there's also a ethical dimension to that decision. I would like to use the source's own words whenever humanly possible. Um, 
I know that I will be, I will carry whatever the biases are of my own time period, every historian does. Um, so I would hope not to impose meaning over these historical subjects, but anytime I hear them self-identifying as, um, as an anarchist, as a worker, um, as a mother with too much to do, um, I want their words to speak through. You also, I know, uh, draw on film in your work, and I, I think it makes some sense. Why don't you say a little bit about the importance of film for the stuff you do? Um, so this actually relates to some of the teaching that I'll be doing this semester. And that is, um, I work with film as a primary source and also as an artistic one. In the, uh, actually in the two paired classes that I teach this semester, uh, it's Mediterranean Ecologies, the North and the South. We are going to use documentary films to look at the intersection of the sciences and the arts. So this idea is part of the green humanities. Um, and that's the idea that we can leverage some of the things that we humanists are good at. Um, emotive power, vivid language, creating a compelling story, um, and use those for good. So how to, the idea behind showing documentary films in these courses um, is to show how film, something that's more traditionally associated with the arts, um, can speak for more ethical environmental practices in law, in government, and in business. Hmm, fascinating. Um, along the lines of a kind of ethical concern, can you say a little bit about what the culinary legacies of colonialism are? Oh, there are so many of them. Um, the one that comes to mind in particular in, uh, in fascist regimes, um, they tend to idealize the past, but they're picking a very particular point in the past that benefited a specific demographic group. So today, when neo-fascist groups point to traditional Italy, they're locating it in a very specific period that benefited people like them. And I see this in campaign posters like Si a la polenta, no al couscous. So this is from Lega Nord, um, I think 2009. Um, and this campaign poster basically said yes to polenta, no to couscous. So polenta is a northern Italian grain. Couscous is, of course, associated with Middle Eastern and North African cuisine. So this was a culinary, basically culinary racism mm -hmm. um, and an anti-migrant sentiment to boot. Um, it would be lovely if this were relegated to a historic footnote, but unfortunately it's newly valid with the new election, um, which has brought the coalition of Luigi Di Maio from the Cinque Stelle leftist populist movement together with La Lega. It's no longer just Lega Nord, this older far-right group, now it's La Lega, it's the whole country. And Matteo Salvini, um, who Bannon actually came to Rome to support, uh, is very much allied with this type of thinking. So the ideas continue today. Mm. Um, can you say something about the political significance of African food and foodways in contemporary Europe? You've begun to speak yes. to that, say a little bit more about it. Um, this continues to be debated uh, everywhere food comes into political discourse. Uh, so even in the very setup of cities, 
um, there's been a host of new culinary legislation that's gone into effect dictating which restaurants can open where. Um, in the city of Lucca in 2010, an ordinance was passed saying that no quote-unquote ethnic restaurants um, could open in the historic city center. The idea was to privilege Italian tradition. Um, what has happened since then is that many restaurants have opened um, that are ethnic, but it has been a French creperie, a Japanese sushi restaurant. Um, what have not been allowed to open are kebab shops. So this is basically legislating which restaurants can and cannot open based on the color of the cook's skin. Fascinating. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, you've spoken about the courses that you're teaching this term. Mm -hmm. um, say a little bit about your pedagogical approach and the kinds of materials you bring. Given what you've been showing us and talking to us about, I'm trying to translate that into the classroom setting. Say a little bit about that. Uh, so one of my favorite things to do is um, to work with the students, hopefully to develop some new norms for, uh, for debate and for civil discourse. One way that we do this in the everyday is instead of my giving them a participation grade from the top down, um, instead we sit down at the beginning of the semester and have a conversation about what does a good debate look like. Um, what does active listening look like? How long should I pause? Who do you normally see getting talked over? When they're talked over, if you're a bystander, what do you do? We write all of this up together, um, and that makes the rubric. So we all abide by, um, by those norms. And by having an explicit conversation about what good civil discourse should look like, um, and then modeling it in the classroom. Um, it's part of the grading that you know, we need to do as teachers anyway. Um, but I know if I were a student, I would want to be part of creating what it means to have a good conversation. And I know that you, you, um, you ask them to evaluate you with some frequency, more frequently than most faculties. Yes. Why? Why is that important? Um, I like to hear what they're thinking. Um, I am legitimately curious as to how they're taking in the material. Um, I usually ask very simple questions. Uh, what was fun? What was hard? What was a surprise? And that sort of open-ended questioning usually gets people talking. Uh, my great hope is that they do the majority of the talking in the classroom. And that's why we do almost entirely activities rather than lectures. Um, if I'm going to present some material that needs to be read, we'll do a students as teachers exercise. In fact, we just did this with the syllabi yesterday. I'm not going to read the syllabus to the classroom. I remember that being exceptionally boring. Um, instead, each group of students gets two sections of the syllabus. They're allowed to use as much of the board as they want, um, and they design a section of it to teach the rest of the class. Mm -hmm. um. You've talked about the kinds of materials you use in your research. You've mm -hmm. just spoken about activities that the mm -hmm. students do. So give me an example of an activity that engages them with some kind of food ways, some kind of uh, evidence from the history of food. Ah, yes. So um, one of my favorite activities to do is to bring in uh, historical cookbooks into the classroom. Um, I have a collection in my office that I hope that students will visit during office hours. Um, 
when I bring those books into the classroom, normally the first reaction is terror because they're in different languages, <laughs> things we don't cover in the classroom. Um, but you don't need the language in order to understand what the book's saying. Um, high quality paper will send you a message. The heft of the book will send you a message. Um, what's highlighted, what's not, how many pictures there are. Um, students can tell uh, who wrote the cookbook, to what end, um, the time period in which it was written, is it upper class, is it working class, all those things are inherent in the material properties of the book. So you've just described the use of a kind of material history in your mm -hmm. classrooms, but you also use technology, modern technology in yes. your classrooms. Say something about that. Sure. That. Um, so the idea here is twofold. Um, I almost always use an e-portfolio for assessment. Um, that's what we produce in the class. So it's basically like a web page that the students own by the end of the course. So they will do their writing there, there's some photography. For the midterm they produce mini pod, uh, a small podcast series. For the final, a uh, presentational skit, which is a YouTube video. All these things go into the e-portfolio. What technology is doing there that we can't do with pen and paper is it projects the students' voices into the wider world. Um, I should not be the only audience for students' work. I would like them to think about when they post something on the internet, it's public. How does that change authorial voice? I want them to start thinking about audience, um, the ramifications for putting anything online and practicing it in the classroom where the stakes are slightly lower. Um, at the end of the course, it also means that they have something that, that is theirs, that they can take away, and it can be anything from a portfolio that they show to future employers to show that they have these uh, multimedia skills, or it can be a creative space just for them. And you're, 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 you're also teaching kind of literacy in contemporary yes. technology. Exactly. Um, since so many of our materials also live online, this is particularly true of the Italian nature documentaries, um, which you cannot get uh, in hard form of any sort. Um, by accessing those materials online, um, it allows us to have some conversations about what does, what do fact and fiction look like in an online environment. Um, and we can start looking for some of the, uh, you know, the key signs um, that spark through any web page that tells you, is this good information that I can use to defend an argument? Mm. So speaking of arguments, I want to now take you back to your research mm -hmm. and ask you to tell us about your next research project. Yes. Um, my next research project began with a talk I gave called The Bean in the Machine. So this is coffee beans and espresso machines. Um, I will be looking at uh, coffee and cafe culture in Italy, Ethiopia, and Brazil. Originally, I had planned to concentrate this project not only on Italy, but on Rome specifically. But as I was putting together my notes for this project um, in a uh, Roman cafe, Sant'Eustachio, I noticed that the colonial propaganda I was studying exactly matched the interior design of the cafe. 
And I started to think, wow, you know, I started to ask some questions of the barista. Um, and the project grew. I realized at that point that this, was, this could not be just a story of Italian cafes in the 1930s, that it was also a story of Italian workers emigrating to Brazil to work in the big coffee fazendas and plantations prior to the fascist period. And it was also a story of the gorgeous cafe culture um, in Asmara, in Eritrea. It was also a story of the coffee plantations in Harar, Ethiopia, that remained Ethiopian owned and operated, again, even during the heart of the occupation. Mm -hmm. So the project itself led me to these three different areas, and that's the research that I hope to continue this summer. Mm -hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, so you've, you've, uh, you've spent a year in Rome, obviously you've spent a lot of time in a variety of locations in Italy and on the continent and, and perhaps in Africa as well. Um, but now you're here in Eugene, Oregon. So um, can you tell us some of the things that um, surprised you or delighted you when you, that you've discovered about our state? <laughs> I have been delighted by how relaxed everyone is. Uh -huh. As I am an uptight Northeasterner, and it is, it is like slipping into a warm bath. <laughs> so it, it has been truly lovely. If I am, uh, if I'm a few minutes late for an appointment, um, that everyone says, "Nah, that's okay. We're gonna get there. It'll be just fine." Um, I am not. I am not used to this level of mellow, and I am really enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had a chance to experience our food culture? I have, and it has been absolutely fantastic. Um, one of my great personal goals is to build a futurist chicken coop, and I know you do wonderful things with chickens here, so I'm really <laughs> looking forward to that. <laughs> okay, Diana. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a really interesting conversation, and there's such interesting things that you're doing in the classroom and in your work, and I think that there's a lot of people on this campus who would be interested in what you do. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Diana Garvin, Assistant Professor of Mediterranean Studies in the Department of Romance Languages at the University of Oregon. Thank you so much for watching.